John 8 today, and I'll tell you right now, we're not going to make it. We're only going to make it through half of John 8. There's a lot in there, and I was, I was looking at my notes, and I was weighing it, and I was like, oh, if I spend every chapter takes me three weeks to get through, there's 20 some odd chapters, that means we'll be in 2020 by the time we get to John 20. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I'm not going to rush it. So in John 8, it opens with a footnote. Actually, the footnote's at the end of John 7. And it says, some early manuscripts do not have John 7, 53 through 8, blah, 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 all that. And um, the thing to remember, 7, 53 through 8, 11, that's what it says. The thing to remember is that John wrote this after Matthew was written and in people's hands. Actually, I should say it this way. Mark was written and in people's hands. Matthew was written and in people's hands. Luke lived out the entire book of Acts. Well, while writing the book of Luke. Luke wrote Luke during the book of Acts. Then he wrote the book of Acts. Isn't that wild? Just, just think that through. Like, um, whenever we sing a song, I always like to look at the dates of when it was written and when it was sung, and then I just think a little bit. I mean, I got like four seconds to think about it, right? And uh, of what year and the year and the context has to do with what they're singing about, because they're a product of their culture, right? So Luke writes Luke while living and traveling the book of Acts. Pretty wild. And then, after the book of Acts, John writes the Gospel of John. So think that through for a little bit. They've already had Pentecost, where fire came down on the apostles, John included. They spoke in all different languages, 3,000 people became Christians on that day and went out to all the nations. And now John has already been exiled. Some historians think that he's already returned from exile. Maybe he hasn't gone to exile in the Gospel of John. We aren't totally sure. And, uh, and he's written down the Gospel of John. And he's written down the Gospel of John because he wants to let you know how important this stuff is. And he wants to, he wants to tell the story and he wants to tell his version because Matthew was close, but he wasn't there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark was close, but everything he wrote, he heard from Peter. And Luke wasn't close. What? He wasn't one of the twelve. He may have been one of the 72 or one of the 500 that Jesus sent out. But Luke got his story from tracking down all these other guys and interviewing them and asking them and questioning them and asking a whole lot of people. John tells his story from lying down against Jesus at the Last Supper. Whoa. So if you're going to listen to somebody, 
do you want to listen to the guy, you know, right? You want to listen to the guy that, that knew what Jesus smelled like. I mean, he was that close. And so what happens is he writes it, he tells it, and, and, and I've heard a couple different theories of why it's not in early manuscripts and why it's in later manuscripts. But it could have been at some point people were like, John, you didn't tell about the time, blah, blah, blah. And then he put it in there and he, he added it. They added it as they started to record it as written. Either way, if you really want to have an exciting, uh, this sounds sarcastic. If you want to have, have an exciting time, get a book about how the Bible was written and how all these texts came together and how they, they gathered all these and how they compare them. There's a early church fathers that will quote the Bible. And so then they take their quote and they find the manuscript that they're quoting. And that's how they back up that. That's how they know that it said it because somebody else not in the Bible is quoting it. Pretty cool way of research. So anyway, so this section with the woman caught in adultery was added later, not added like in the 1200s. Um, still in early manuscripts, just not in the earliest of manuscripts. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. This is after all that other stuff that happened before. Then he comes back and he is in the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. That was the way a teacher would teach then. They would stand up to read God's word. They'd stand up to read the scroll. And then when it was time to teach, they would go and sit down and they would teach from a, a sitting a special chair. Pretty interesting. All the people came to him, he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. So they bring her right in and they put her right in front. Teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So they have brought her in. She has been caught in adultery. Now, this could have happened a couple different ways. It could have been somebody saw this man and woman doing that and they apprehended her and the guy got away and they bring her in. It could have been word of mouth later that a man could have come. Uh, specifically, adultery involves a married woman cheating on her husband or a married man cheating on his wife. That's where they, they make the difference between like uh, different words translate fornication or lasciviousness would just be outright, you know, sex out of wedlock kind of thing, but adultery is specifically, there's, there's a, a break of a covenant here. That's, that's important. That's an important part of it. So they bring her right into the middle of everything and they say, what do you say? So all the Pharisees and the scribes, they are experts in the law and they are all thinking about Deuteronomy 22.44. Now, these guys would know Deuteronomy 22-44 so well that you could say a few words and they'd be able to finish the verse for you. 
and recite it. So they know it frontwards and backwards. They know what 2243 was. They would know what 2245 was. They knew it up and down. So I'm going to read just 44 to you real carefully so we can just know it as good as these Pharisees and scribes, right? Just don't miss any word here. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So they're doing what it said, right? Not at all. Where is that guy? Where is he? So their desire, the desire and the intent of that law is to drive evil out of the land. If somebody does wrong, we're going to punish wrong and you're, you're, you're going to drive the evil from the land. The other thing about this is, this is in Deuteronomy 22.44. This is like the Constitution. This is like the Bill of Rights. You guys have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. You had no law to yourselves. You could only do what your, your masters, what your owners told you to do. So now we're going to set up a law. And the law is that if a guy has adultery with a woman and she doesn't cry for help, because if he's, if he's doing it against her will, she cries for help, then the guy's in trouble. If she doesn't cry for help, they're both in trouble, and we can't have that. How many of these people, the custom would be, I'm going to kill that guy, I'm going to kill his wife, I'm going to kill their kids, I'm going to burn their house down, I'm going to find their dad. There's a bunch of things in the law that at the time were actually restrictions to how bad you could get back at somebody. That's what the whole eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was. If somebody knocks out my tooth, I'm just going to chop their head off. I'm going to beat their face in. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't get vengeance worse than what was done to you. Don't escalate this business. And so the law is good. The law is right. You know, we've got these lawless people that don't know how to live. And we're going to give them, the, God gives them the law so that they can live holy and live pure and have a good nation. But these guys did not want to obey the law. They wanted to trick Jesus. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care about the holiness of God to purge the evil from the land. They wanted to keep their structure. They wanted to keep their power and they wanted to keep their ability to know that they were right. They make it look like they want to obey the law. They have the appearance, the outward appearance of we are do-gooders, we are good people, we are righteous. But on the inside, they were very evil. And they're trying to trap the Son of God in a, in a rule, in a, in a conundrum. That's the worst kind of religion there is. Look really good on the outside, even if it means we got to kill somebody to keep our structure in our way. 
James, in the book of James, it says you should show your faith by your works. By your works, you'll show that you have faith. These guys were not trying to show that they had faith by their works. They were trying to show that they were righteous and holy like people that have faith are righteous and holy. Do you get that? People that have faith are righteous and holy and good people, and they do this. So if I do this, I'll look like them. And it says in the law, I got to stone this lady for committing adultery. Well, yeah, you do, but you're supposed to stone the man and the woman. And where is that guy? We got no, no explanation, right? No details. The very next verse, verse 6 They said this to test him so that they would have some charge to bring against him. They deliberately were trying to to trick. They were trying to get their way out of following God. They were trying to get their way out of listening to God. This happens when if somebody, there's all kinds of terrible stuff in the church. Church people are people, which means we don't do stuff right and we mess up. And if people could use that as an excuse to not listen to God, they think they really got, yes, I got it. And that's that's not the way that's not the way it works. As they continued to ask him, he stood up. So now Jesus gets up. Oh, so teaching just ended, right? If the rabbi sits down to teach. They bring this lady in. They are all accusing him. They're all asking. They're all shouting. I mean, the crowd is in a a frenzy of, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? This lady was caught in adultery. We caught her. The law of Moses says we should have stoned her. I mean, they're all getting worked up. Jesus gets up out of his chair. And you got to just think at this moment, oh, something is about to happen. Like, it's about to go down. But he doesn't argue with them. He does not talk louder than them and shout them down. He doesn't tell them to be quiet and listen. He just lets them dig their own holes deeper. And he lets them just get more worked up about how sinful this woman is and what she deserves. So that when he does speak, he says... Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw. Oh, yeah, wait, hold on. I skipped a part. Jesus gets up and he's writing on the ground. And we have no idea what he was writing on the ground. There's no way we could know what he was writing on the ground. If anybody says they know what he was writing on the ground, ask them also what day the end of the world is going to come because we can't know that either. And... uh, but he's, do you know, I mean, how annoying is it if you're talking to me about something serious and I'm not paying attention to you because I'm writing on the ground? I almost wonder if this is the monitor, this is the monitor, hold on. Huh? Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? These guys are all fired up. You've got to stone this lady and Jesus is looking at his phone like he's not paying attention. He's not reacting in anger. Here's Jesus who knows the truth and he knows what is right. All these people are arguing with him and he's not arguing back. Instead, he says, let him who is without sin among you 
Be the first to throw the stone at her. That was it. Goes back. (laughs) Goes back to riding in the dirt. Goes back to looking at his phone. And he lets them be. Man, I wish I could argue like Jesus. Right? Instead of reacting, instead of responding, he just lets them kind of get it all out, and then he's got wisdom. And then he plops that wisdom out there, and he just lets them deal with it. That is a huge risk. I mean, just think that through for a minute. Jesus didn't say, don't stone her. He didn't, we don't know where he's standing. He's not, it doesn't say that he's standing between the people and the lady. He's not necessarily defending her. He gave them truth, and then he sat it there for the, and he entrusted it to them, and then he waited. Isn't that wild? Like, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know that I could, if somebody is about to do something super wrong, if I could entrust the truth to them and then turn my back on them and wait for the truth to set in. Right? That's what Jesus did. Once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. What? One thing about that phrase to catch, like however you picture it, however it is in the movies, she is standing up amongst them. I know in a lot of the movies, they show her down on the ground. She's like mercy from Jesus and all this. She's just standing there. There's Jesus. Jesus stood up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He didn't beat her up. He didn't say, You sinful woman, what brought you here? You should know better. No. And by asking her, where are they? Where are your accusers? She makes, he makes her pay attention that they've all left. He makes her testify and, and recognize all of her accusers are gone. She probably saw them walking off. Think that through. She's about to die. They, um, it, it was technically illegal for Jews to execute people, which is why it's really crazy. Like They had to get really mad when Stephen got stoned and killed. Um, everybody that was there killing Stephen was actually breaking Roman law because the Jews weren't allowed to do that. That's why they turned Jesus over to Pilate, because they really wanted Jesus dead, but they also didn't want to break the law. Kind of crazy. Uh, so they, these guys are worked up and they're ready to kill her. And she's standing there watching them. The oldest ones first. Isn't that wild? I mean, those are going to be the people that have the most sin because they've had the most time to commit it. And hopefully the wisest, right? And they're going to walk away and leave her. He says, neither do I condemn you. He doesn't even say a single thing about adultery being bad. 
He doesn't say a single thing about what kind of lifestyle led her to this. He does not try to solve her problems at all, does he? He doesn't instruct her. He doesn't even make sure that she knows how to keep out of this in the future. He just says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Now he also is not saying here that what you did was okay. He's not saying that adultery is fine. It wasn't your fault. He doesn't say that. He actually, by saying sin no more, some translations say go go your way and stop sinning. He's recognizing that what she was doing was sin. So now we got a question here, right? Because we're in this every day. We're, We're faced with these kind of situations every single day. We're surrounded, we're surrounded by people sinning all around us. We're surrounded by opportunity to tell them you shouldn't do that, that's wrong, and here's why, and here's what bad thing you did to get you into this mess, and just really let them have it. We also have opportunity, because Jesus told us to go tell people that their sins have been forgiven. Whoa. Whoa. And how can we just willy-nilly tell people their sins are forgiven? I think I've said it before. It's the only thing in the universe that's only true if you believe it. That if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, then it's true. He did that for you. And if you don't believe it, if you don't believe it, then He didn't do it for you. That's how Jesus Himself explains it. And so we have an opportunity. Jesus said, go and proclaim the forgiveness of sins in my name. And he wasn't talking to the 12. He was talking to the 500. He was talking to all the people that follow Jesus. We can tell them their sins are forgiven by Jesus. Jesus forgives their sins. He said to Peter and he said to the 12, whoever you forgive is forgiven and whoever you don't forgive is forgiven isn't now does that apply to us or not different people argue that either way i like to think that it does so whoever we forgive in the name of jesus because of jesus that sin is forgiven now are they going to heaven or hell i don't know that's a lot more complicated but we have the power to wipe away sins committed against us and that's what jesus does that's what jesus did so that day, Deuteronomy 2240, 44-22, 22-44. I don't know. 22-44. Purge the evil from the land, God says. Do this, purge the evil. On that day, what do you think purged more evil from the land? Jesus standing up there from the chair and saying, do it. And they all kill that lady with rocks. Or do you think more evil was purged from the land that day by Jesus saying, whoever of you is without sin and doesn't deserve a rock upside the head can throw the first stone. That purged the evil from the land, didn't it? Because those guys went home thinking, oh my gosh, I deserve to be stoned a lot. And I haven't been. 
that lady stood there, saw people ready to pull the trigger and kill her, walk away and and show her forgiveness. And then the Lord of the universe says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That purged the evil from the land as far as those people were concerned. Freedom does that. In 1 John 4.13, John, same John, writes a letter to somebody. And he says, by this, we, we know that we abide in God and that God abides in us because he's given us the Holy Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We have seen that God sent Jesus. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I got a relative that she's staying with some other relatives and all the other relatives went out of town and she's all by herself and she was afraid at her house and my wife and I are talking and we're like, she can come over here and stay at our house if she doesn't want to stay alone. What would she be doing? She would be coming over to abide in our house. She would be resting in a place where she felt safe with us. If anybody, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God rests and feels safe in Him, and He rests and feels safe in God. So we've come to know and to believe that the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence of the day of judgment. He is also as he, I mean, John goes back and forth. He's in us. We're in him. We're in him. He's in us. Then 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This lady that was caught in adultery now has no fear or shame of judgment. She has no fear of condemnation because she's been forgiven. That is the best motivator to live a holy life and to not sin again. The next time she thinks about cheating on somebody's husband, she's going to remember, Jesus wiped all my shame away. Why would I want to bring more shame on myself? Why would I want to sin again? I think I've told this story before. Um, So... When uh, One Life was going to get started in Henderson, Brett Nicholson and the leaders of One Life, they would go to Henderson and they'd, they'd pray around different sites to figure out where to go. And they would eat at this restaurant and they didn't know it, but this restaurant was like the Henderson equivalent of Hooters. And it was like disregarded and not a good, like, People did not look with favor on this restaurant. They didn't look with favor on people that ate at that restaurant, but they didn't know any better. They just went and ate. And they would, that would be like their regular place. And uh, they, this waitress said, what are you guys always coming in here for? Are you guys working on a project here? And they said, we're planting a church. And the lady said that one time she wore her shirt from work to a church to go to church after she got off work, something like that. 
And somebody in the parking lot said, nobody that works at that place should ever come to this church. And the lady turned right around the parking lot, got back in the car and left and never went to church again. So Brett says, I'll tell you what. On the day that we open, I'm going to wear one of those shirts. If you'll come. She was blown away. So what's he do? He bought the shirt. It was like 20 bucks. He bought the shirt. He saved it. The day they opened, he wore the shirt when he preached. She came. Co-workers came. Family came. And they, like, it was radical. All kinds of people that had not come to church, were not welcome at church, came. Why? Because they had the freedom to come. They had the, it, it wasn't judgment. It wasn't, if you show up in that ch- church, if you show up in that shirt at that church, you're going to get it. It was perfect love that casts out fear. There was no fear. See, when somebody does something wrong, when somebody sins, we have an opportunity to throw a rock at them because they deserve it. The Bible says so. That is not the way we drive evil out of the land. We drive evil out of the land by perfect love that casts out fear, that telling them their sins are forgiven. Do you, do you ever come home and your wife miraculously cleaned up your home office and it's just totally clean and you don't know where any of your stuff is, but it's beautiful? Maybe that's never happened to you. It's happened to me like a dozen times. You don't want to put anything on that desk. You got, you got your receipt from the gas station. You're like, I don't want to put that there. I'll throw it in the trash where it goes. Because the thing is clean and you want to keep it clean. That's how Jesus knows that that's how we operate with sin too. When your sins are forgiven, you have that opportunity to sin again. And you're like, gosh, it felt so good to be holy, righteous, pure, righteous before God. I don't want to throw mud on that again. And so you resist. That works so much better than, oh, if I, if I sin, it'll be bad. It won't be that bad. Right? That's acting out of fear, acting out of freedom. So I think John, when he's writing all this, remember he's not writing in order. He's just writing about things that are important. And I think the Holy Spirit plopped that in there right before John 12, because it all fits. John 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will walk in the light of life. They say, you're bearing witness about it yourself. Your testimony is not true. They are getting into this law business. The law said, the Jewish courts are kind of different than ours. And it kind of makes sense. You could never give a testimony about yourself. Anything you said, you know how they read you your rights? Anything you say can be used against you. Nope. If you, were, if you were accused of something in Jewish law, nothing you said mattered. It meant nothing. The only thing that mattered was witnesses. You can't give a testimony to help yourself. You can't give a testimony to hurt yourself. Basically, you're a liar until proven innocent. 
is how they would work. Nothing you say counts. So here's Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever walks in me won't walk in darkness. And the Jews are all saying, you can't talk about yourself like that. You can't do that. These guys are so hard, so hard in their hearts to not believe Jesus that they're, they're nitpicking just the, the, the most irrelevant laws they can. Yeah, irrelevant laws they can to accuse him. Jesus answers him, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. You don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You guys have no idea. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anybody. Now they know this is true, right? They were just, it might have been a couple days ago. It might have been a couple weeks ago. It might have been that same day. They were judging that woman according to their flesh because they wanted to catch Jesus. He's saying, I'm not judging anybody. He says, in your law, it's written the testimony of two people is true. You want, you want the testimony of two people? All right, you got me and the Father who sent me. They said, where is your Father? Jesus says, you don't know him. That would, like if you know what's going on, that is about the worst thing you could hear Jesus say. Where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. See, as soon as Jesus starts to say God is his father, that gets close to blasphemy and idolatry, and that's what gets him stoned. That's what gets him attacked. So he really is trying to reason with these guys, but he's also kind of just addressing, you aren't paying attention, you don't want to learn, you're not really looking for the truth. He says to them again, I'm going away and you're going to look for me and you're going to die in your sin because where I'm going, you can't come. Whenever Jesus says something confusing, he is trying to get you and me and them to ask him more questions with a very open heart, not to ask questions with "That's stupid. What are you talking about? But to ask questions, I don't understand. What what do you mean by that? Explain it more to me. He says, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, the big question from this is, how do I not die? In my sin. Because these are scribes and Pharisees. Their job is to uphold the law so that they won't sin. These are the most sin-free guys in the whole country. And if Jesus is telling them, you're going to die in your sin, they should want to know, how do I not? They don't. They say, who are you? He says, just what I've been telling you. I have a lot to say to you, a lot of judgments to make. He who sent me is true, but you don't understand. And some of them are trying to argue. Some of them are starting to understand. And Jesus can tell it. So at the end of this, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. That whole section, the thing, the, the number one thing I think we can take away from that is that Jesus did whatever the Father told him. And he didn't do anything else. I got all kinds of ideas and all kinds of great things I can do. I can be super creative and I can get all kinds of learning. But to just do what God tells me to do is better than any of that. There's, a, there's this whole idea that success is to achieve something or to do something and then you're done.